Welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. So glad that you're with us. Thank you for choosing Almost 30 among the 800 million podcasts. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> How There's, the heck every did you find us? person every day is like, I got to tell you something crazy. And they like get all serious. They're like, I'm going to do a podcast. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm 0% surprised. <laughs> but I know it's a big thing for people to put themselves out there and their voices oh, yeah. out there, but it always cracks me up. Totally. Wow. <laughs> I'm blown away. Oh, man. But we help podcasters. Podcast yeah, pro, true. baby. If you want coaching. If Keep you us want, in business. <laughs> yeah, literally. If you want support monetizing, growing your podcast, podcast pro. So almost30.com podcast pro. Yeah, because it takes a lot of, I think if you look at a podcast, you're like, easy. I yes, just record you it. just talk. Put it out. But it's it's pretty complex and it takes consistency and hard work. So, yeah, happy to support you. I will have to say with podcasting, this is my soapbox that I've been on. I'll probably never get off of it. I'm like needing to ground myself before I start talking about it. I get so it's just like with podcasting, it is not just talking. It's so much more than just talking. Of course. It's listening, it's like energy dynamics, it's vocal tone, it's flow, it's asking the right questions, it's presence, it's predicting. It's so much, especially with us, our dynamic, and then a guest. Yes. You're meeting a person for the first time a lot of times. So you have to create like a rapport immediately. It's just, it's so much more. I think a lot of people are like, I'm going to start a podcast. And you kind of think you just talk. I mean- no. Mm -hmm. It's a skill. I have a valid job. <laughs> and, it, and it takes, t like with anything, yes. and I, I think that's what we're missing a lot of, not even just in podcasting, but with really any yeah. career. It takes time. It takes time to be good, really good at what you do. I think some people are born naturally with talent, but bringing this talent to something like podcasting you're going to have to learn a lot about being in the moment with someone. So it is. It takes time. It's like hot potato. You got to be like, okay, what are we going to talk about? Where are we going to go? What are you going to say? And I could be even better. You know, we did a conversation recently where someone said wild shit. And I just was like, what is going on? And it, it's like, are you going to go down that path? Are you going to say how you feel? Are you going to continue? You know, it's mm. just like, Mm hmm. Yeah, it can be. It's like halfway through. We're like, we're not going to air this. right? hundred <laughs> percent. After there was like two things, two or three things, I was just like, yeah, we've we're off the cliff. We've completely yeah. gone off the cliff and there's no coming back. Totally. A lot of people DM us and say, I have a podcast. Do I have to release every episode? No, you don't. Mm -hmm. You don't at all. So that's a little BTS of podcasting, but I'm grateful that you're here. This is going to be a really great episode. We've heard you guys loud and clear. So many people have really enjoyed the conversations we've had recently around hormones and birth control, yeah. especially the episode we did with Sarah Hill, which is Brain on Birth Control. You can listen to that one as well if you search birth control almost 30. That one's gone viral on TikTok, gone viral on Instagram. One of our most downloaded episodes as of late. And we've been talking about this for years. So it's all good that we're just catching <laughs> up. <laughs> Honestly, I think three years ago, we started talking At about least. birth control. Oh, I think four. Four, maybe. Because we went off birth control. Yeah. 
I think right after we started the pod. So it was probably that following year that yes. we were kind of like, oh, it's making a difference. Yes. <laughs> so we, we felt the difference, you oh, know, when yeah. we got off of it. So I'm just grateful. Yeah, I'm truly. grateful that we can now have a conversation where it doesn't feel like people think that they are being attacked if they choose to take birth control. Right. And that we're just being open and honest about the actual scientific effects of birth control on the body. Yeah. And just acknowledging that there are some conditions that birth control helps decrease the intensity of symptoms. I'm actually, I know a few offhand, but I just want to honor those people that are on birth control and it really helps them to find some sort of relief for what they're physically going through. But we wanted to bring this information because it's not being talked about. Yeah. It wasn't talked about to us when we were younger. Not at all. You're going to have clear skin and big boobs. I mean, say that to a 14-year-old. I was so excited. I remember freshman year of college, I had just gone on birth control the year prior. And I, I mean, like the titty shirts I would wear out to senior housing and Marianne's bar was incredible. I think it was also a combination of like that inflammation in my body, (laughs) gaining weight freshman, (laughs) freshman year. But it was like this really kind of destructive cocktail physically for me. And Sarah Hill talks about this and and a few others, but your picker is off. Like you're picking people that are totally not necessarily who you would choose if you were off birth control. And I just, I can't say enough about that truth. (laughs) (laughs) But I was picking- Say names. (laughs) I was picking them. Yeah, they were rife off the- dickhead tree and it was just yeah it's something that I needed to go through clearly but the fact that I had no awareness mm-hmm. physically emotionally yeah I was so emotional and dude just I felt like the train had left the building and I couldn't get on yeah I yeah. was so low so Today's episode is Dr. Jolene Brighton, which is really exciting. So she's a pioneer in women's medicine. She's an award-winning board-certified naturopath, endocrinologist, and sex counselor. She wrote Beyond the Pill, which is a really, really great book if you loved Sarah Hill's book. It has so much more about birth control, and I really love Dr. Brighton's perspective on birth control. She talks really openly about birth control syndrome which are the symptoms that people can have coming off of birth control. And I know in a few episodes that we've done, we've talked about how to support yourself coming off of birth control with people like Elisa Vitti and others. So we have information on that. We'll put in the show notes and we'll share those more on Instagram so you can get support if you want to get off of birth control. But today's episode with Dr. Jolene Brighton, we are talking about Is This Normal, which is a book that she wrote recently where we're going to be exploring things about our body that might not be talked about, that might not be things that, you know, are normally explored or feel like you might feel shy about or you might feel uncomfortable about because like birth control and like hormones, this is such a ripe and relevant conversation because I don't think a lot of us were given a lot of this information when we were younger. Yeah, not at all. And what I think is really interesting is... You mentioned, and you did this interview with Dr. Jolene, but around the sexual desire levels and just kind of what we're taught and in the narrative around men want it more than women and kind of what could be affecting that, but also psychologically what could be holding us back from actually exploring our desires and just that 
physical and emotional and honestly spiritual part of ourselves. What was kind of like a, a highlight or takeaway from that part? Yeah. So what Lindsay's talking about is basically it's like a normalized idea in our culture to believe that women do not have the same libido or sexual desire as men. And that's actually not true. And I think what was interesting is thinking about all the different elements of that. And we kind of just more explored it. But it's like, where is there the cultural influence of our Christianity-focused culture here in the West and how in Christian culture it's more of like abstinence? So a lot of states and schools preach abstinence. So that kind of shuts you down right away from really understanding pleasure or feeling like you're a sexual being. And then there's also the element of birth control. So a lot of women who are taking birth control have different libido levels. They're not going to have as high of a libido level because they're not going to have that cycle, that yeah. natural cycle where you have a higher libido level yes. when you're ovulating than others. And then there's also just like culturally in society. I mean, I think that was like every movie that I watched or anything where you kind of are having sex to perform and not for your own pleasure. And I'm really grateful that we're kind of moving away from that where it's sex is fully from the male gaze of male's pleasure and women are sort of only doing it to please the man and not for their own enjoyment and lifting that veil. Yeah, if I think about especially in my 20s, sex was so much about being like the the key to get in. Mm -hmm. So like if we can have a good physical connection mm -hmm. and so that kind of dimmed or really shut down that part of me as like having a connection to what I actually desire. I was only thinking about what would this person want in order to like me. So that's something that I've had to rewire. And just on the birth control point, I was on birth control during that time. And it felt like, yeah, I was picking the wrong people who wouldn't kind of encourage that more balanced exploration rather than it just being like this kind of total male need. I mean, no one talked about it. I think you talk about it with your girlfriends yeah. about details of it, but you never talk about like the pleasure of it. It's mm -hmm. weird. It was, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't, I mean, how much information your girlfriends knew about shit yeah, when yeah. you're in high school and I feel college. like it's almost like none now is a crime. I know exactly. <laughs> As you get older, it's truly none. Yeah. Like you don't know anything. Maybe if you're dating, yeah, but not yeah, like long-term yeah. partners. I yeah. don't even know because you're not like me and my husband. Like, Or I don't know. Maybe <laughs> totally. that's not my experience. I think another really great book for this kind of conversation around desire is Sex at Dawn. I really love mm -hmm, that book. I think mm -hmm. it really explores cultures all over the world and how women not only physically from like a biological perspective where we can orgasm more than once and we have the ability to actually have sex more than men because men have to get hard and all of that mm -hmm. it explores just like how all over the world mostly women are as sexually active or as sexually desiring as men are so that's a really great book but in this conversation we talk a lot about hormones so we talked a lot about hormones from the perspective of your metabolism, from the perspective of them being building blocks for your life, for your mood, for your body composition, for your sex life. And so this is going to be really helpful for you in understanding your body and understanding how to really work with your hormones to support you in living a super juicy and vivacious life. 
And then we talked about birth control syndrome too. So I wanted to explore that because, again, that was something we've been talking about a lot in our community is birth control. So what symptoms could you be having that are indicative of birth control syndrome, which you can have when you get off of birth control? We also talked a lot about things that are not normal. So in our bodies, in our exploration about how we feel or how our body's working, what is actually not normal. And one of the things that she brought up that I thought was interesting is not having a period and how she spoke a lot about how not having a period is not normal and we should be having periods. So she'll explain more of that. I can't, you know, explain more from like a doctor's perspective, but I felt like that was interesting because I know that there are some women that do struggle with having a regular period. And when we say it's not normal, doesn't mean you're a bad person and doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong, but it means that there might be something that you could be doing to support your body in finding more balance, in feeling more in line with where it should be naturally. And it could be affecting more than you know. Sometimes we get so crazed with like either we can't sleep or maybe we're experiencing acne and like just all of these different symptoms. So if you can get to the root and find a lot of peace. So the new book is, Is This Normal Judgment-Free Straight Talk About Your Body? Thank you, Dr. Jolene Brighton. So excited. Krista could see you in person. Yes, Such this a is a one. good one. All right, guys, we love you so much. Almost 30 podcast on TikTok. TikTok's popping off. Pop so it. make sure to check out TikTok. Almost 30 podcasts on Instagram if you're not following already. Join our community. We also have our membership. Our membership is the best place on the internet where we have workshops with leaders and founders and teachers and healers every single month. Lindsay and I pop in there for coaching, connecting calls, and it's a place where you can help ground yourself in all of the work that you want to do in this world to make your life better. I have an amazing program called The Life Edit, which is a step-by-step program to embody your highest self now by taking action every single day to support yourself in your journey of life. And then we also have Sacredness of Being Single. Sacredness is a program that was born in the wake of my single season. And this is really a community and a support system to help you navigate this season and beyond. Even when you're in relationship, we must not self-abandon and make sure that we find our center in order to be in really healthy relationships. So you can learn about all of these programs and our membership and more at almost30.com. Love you guys. Bye. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Oh, therapy, y'all. I don't know. I just, I don't know what I did before therapy, to be completely honest with you. I think I was kind of a mess, but you know, found it when I was meant to, but I have been going to therapy for about six years now, which is so crazy so crazy, but it has changed my life and I will continue to invest in therapy for as long as I can. I feel like it has totally, totally made my relationships better, made my career better. I am a better mom. I am a better wife. I'm a better friend. I'm a better daughter and sister. Y'all, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do, this is it. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you get matched and you're like, eh, not quite a fit, they make it easy and it's free to change. 
but I've had a lot of friends try BetterHelp and love it. So I really, really encourage you to start therapy. It's been the best decision I've ever made for myself. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash almost 30 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash almost 30. Okay, I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app, um, Superhuman. I have been doing these superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him still is, but I have been able to carve out time in the morning before I get into the swing with him. And I've been doing these activations. I do a lot of the shorter ones because I don't have a ton of time, but let me just say, this is new. Like this is a new type of audio that, um, are super energizing and really specifically designed to transform you into your future self. So I know a lot of us want to manifest things. I know a lot of us are thinking about planning for the future. Um, but a lot of us feel stuck. And so I've just felt like this has unstuck me in just the most beautiful way. So I've been doing a lot of their pep talks. I've been doing some of their writing activations. Uh, this morning I did the three morning questions. It was a seven minute, really vibey writing activation that I love. So I had my journal out. Um, Yesterday, I did a pep talk uh, about tackling procrastination. There's a part of me that procrastinates quite a bit. So I'm just... I love this. I love this. There's going to be an activation for you for this moment, for this day. Uh, It's incredibly supportive. So we actually interviewed Mimi Bouchard, the founder, not too long ago. Check out that interview. Uh, and we have a sample of one of the activations on our feed. So you can check that out as well. It's way easier to implement into your routine and far more effective than any other audio app out there. I've just noticed that I'm doing it much more consistently. So please don't miss out on this crazy deal. They rarely do discounts. On top of the 14-day free trial, get over 60% off your subscription for a limited time only at activation.com slash almost 30. Literally, there is no risk. If you change your mind and forget to cancel after the trial, you're covered by their money back guarantee. The offer is only available through their website, not on the app store. So that's activations.com slash almost 30 for 60% off. It expires soon. I'm really excited to have you. This yeah. is really beautiful. We wanted to have this conversation or a conversation with you for a really long time. And I think it's so perfect. And I've loved diving into your book. It's been just a pleasure to read. And there's a few points that I'll bring up that I felt like I've already learned so, so, so much. But I'd love to talk a little bit about in just starting this, we were kind of diving into it before, but like why this book now? Because I feel like you feel like this is your legacy and something you're so passionate about. What about it feels so pertinent and relevant for this time? Oh, you know, so I wrote, Beyond the Pill. And when Beyond the Pill came out, I was flooded with all kinds of questions and messages. And it was amazing. And so many people being like, yes, like I needed this information for so long. But the questions I was getting to me as a doctor, I'm like, this is so basic. But it's obviously not because people are asking it and they don't understand it. And so I really set out, I was like, I want to write the book of what your sex ed teacher should have said. Like before you got your period, what you should have known and make it for the adult woman. 
Why do you think so many women are missing so much information? What do you think the gap is between us really understanding our body and our hormones and our health? Because it should be something that is like passed down generationally or through community, but it's really gatekept. Oh, yeah. Yes. I think that's a perfect word for it. So one, we've got inadequate health education happening in high schools. Only 18 states as of now mandate medically accurate sex education. So if it's not medically accurate, it's just not accurate. So we've got that piece. We've also got the piece that like if nobody taught your grandmother or your mother or, you know, your cousin or your aunt, like who's going to teach you? How are they going to teach you? That I think is incredibly unfair for us to be like, oh, you know, moms should be teaching their daughters. But moms were taught by people who were blatantly misinforming them, knowing they were misinforming them. And then we've got medicine that definitely gates keeps information that like until recently didn't even really invest into studying women's conditions and giving it attention. We've seen, you know, issues with gaslighting. I think back to like 10 years ago, we didn't have the word gaslighting and we get to now and I'm like, that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. That's (laughs) the word for them. But we still also have doctors who will tell you things that are they know is misinformation. Like you could get pregnant any day in your cycle. They know that's not true. And yet they tell you that because that will that's their responsibility to keep mm. you safe, right? We're so we've all these like, yeah, we've they're scared. But we've got all these people who are basically keeping information from us and deciding, picking and choosing what to share with us and based on their own agenda. And nobody just saying, hey, let's give them the information they need and let them decide what they keep and what they don't. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that with do you think that the sex education was medically inaccurate because of there's like an undercurrent of religion in the way that we view sex? Absolutely. What do you think it is? Yeah, no, that absolutely. Like when you look at what's going on, and I know it's going to upset people because, you know, some people don't want to hear that like not everybody has the same beliefs as them and is it's their right not to have the same beliefs as them. But absolutely, we see that in the states that have the, the worst information that they're doling out or that require abstinence only or just require like abstinence to be something that's pushed heavily those are the highly religious states and so it is very much influenced it's very much the belief that goes against all the science that if you withhold information if you don't teach them about sex they won't have sex like that makes no sense and the data is like you're wrong and it's also it's really problematic like from a public health standpoint we have the highest rates of Unintended pregnancies, teen pregnancies. So in our youth, they're not being taught how to have protective sex, how to avoid pregnancy. But we also see a lot of STIs going on. And when you look at other countries like Germany or the Netherlands where they're teaching consent to toddlers, I mean, that's not hard to do. If you don't want to hug someone, you don't hug someone. You ask before you hug someone. But they are teaching this pleasure first, really comprehensive sex education. And the outcomes have been phenomenal. And you also see that these children who grow into young adults, they're having open conversations with their parents rather than turning to the internet to find God knows what on the internet as an answer to their body. And so that's also part of why I wrote my book is that these are all the questions I've received from patients, people on social media, readers of my website, and questions that I'm like, you should have this information. You should have always had this information. It shouldn't be a mystery how your body works. Yeah, the one of the things that I also feel, I'm also curious what you think about as it relates to like gatekeeping information because of, and when I say agenda, it's not like conspiracy agenda, but it's like with birth control, do you think that because birth control was so pushed on 
our generation, my generation, the generations that I've lived with, is that why we don't understand hormones in our body? Is like, Do you think they have a relation? Man, that's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that before. I think part of that narrative is like, why even bother understanding your hormones? Because we can just give you a pill to replace them and it will clear your skin and prevent pregnancy and give make you your boobs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody always brings that oh up. Oh my like, God. They were like, they were like, boobs. I was like, boobs. <laughs> I know. Same, same. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll have a larger chest. Like Pamela Anderson. Oh, like, right? Like, oh my God. Totally. Like, yeah. uh, they only told me the benefits. Yeah. No, like, clear absolutely. skin, big boobs. I was like, lost my personality, lost my mind, mm. like, yeah. went insane. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I talk about that in my book, Beyond the Pill. I struggled in the same way, like mental health issues, chronic yeast vaginitis, like things that like, when I was bringing it up to my doctor, they were like, it's a you problem, not a pill problem. I'm like, even when I brought you side effects, you would not even discuss like the pill being part of that. And some of that comes from the, well, we have to make sure that you're preventing an unwanted pregnancy. And so like, that's, that's all that matters is don't get pregnant. And then on the flip side, it's also that like doctors are just taught like the pill is this big feminist tool. So don't question it. Don't bring up anything negative. And if you do, like I have, people label you anti-pill and they're like, oh, she's the anti-birth control lady. Like that's the anti-birth control doctor. I'm like a Latina who came from a large Hispanic family who didn't get pregnant as a teenager, the very first woman in my family, to make it to 30 and then choose to have a baby. Like, I'm not anti this tool that I personally leverage. I just would have wished to have all the information and that all of my patients got all the information before they started it. Yeah. I mean, that's been our kind of agenda with it all too, is having more conversations around it. Because once you learn what it does to your brain and your body, it's like, it's no joke. No, yeah. It's really no joke. And I think it was just so flippant. People were so flippant mm -hmm. about, I don't know if because we, we were women or because we were young women, but it's interesting too, because you said people take the pill, take birth control to not get pregnant. And I think that also relates to our relationship where we have with sex and pleasure, mm -hmm. where it's like, take this to not get pregnant, but yes. there's actually, again, a negation or there's no conversation around pleasure. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is a pill. Do not get pregnant. That's what sex is for. Get pregnant. Yeah. But there's no conversation around pleasure and sex, too. Mm -hmm. No, there's no sex education happening in this country that's pleasure forward, pleasure centered in any way. The countries that have the greatest success and outcomes in terms of Measuring the metrics that we want to avoid, right? The STIs, making sure that people are having consensual sex, that it is pleasurable sex. Like they are talking about pleasure with their youth. And that is certainly, it's a failing in the United States. So the funny thing about birth control is that the fear of an unintended pregnancy, that will put you out of the mood. So you, you might experience like you're, you're aroused, but now you're no longer aroused because then that fear entered your mind. You can't orgasm because all your brain can think about is, oh God, what if I get pregnant? And so birth control is a great way to alleviate that, right? No longer have that fear. Except for some people, you start the pill and that's going to diminish your sexual desire. So you got on the pill so that you would have sex and that you would enjoy sex and not be afraid. But now you're on a drug that literally shifts your hormones in a way that can make sex painful, can make it so it's more difficult to self-lubricate. And can make it so it's more difficult to orgasm, but it can just make it so you don't even want to have sex altogether. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you were talking about some people would take the pill because they had a desire to not feel the feeling of like, oh my God, I'm going to get pregnant. Yeah. And I never had that feeling. I did it in part because of what it would be like when I would t tell a man that I was on it. 
or the person I was with Mm -hmm. because they would have the relief. Yeah. It wouldn't be a relief for me. It was like their relief because it was so – pleasure was so focused on them. Yeah. It was so performative. It was so – I didn't even realize in my mind that sex was for me until I got older. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, oh, this is me and this is what I do and this is what you sound like and this is how you move. Absolutely. It's crazy. Because where did we learn sex? We learned it from like media. Like watching movies, watching TV shows. There might be somebody having sex like that, but most people are not having sex like that. Let me ask you, what was your sex education like? Like, what do you remember from it? I'm from Ohio. Okay. So let's start there. (laughs) Small town in Ohio. And ours was, I remember where we, where I was, but I remember we had the slideshows of the STDs. Mm -hmm. So we had the slideshows of the STDs and the STIs. And I think ours was abstinent focused. I can't really remember, but I remember. I like how you close your eyes. You're like going back in time. I I remember where I'm sitting and I remember who I'm, I sat next to this kid named Jimmy that had tattoos all over his body. And Wait, in high school? In high school. Oh, that's interesting. Abstinence only, but we got tatted. I mean, honestly, (laughs) Jimmy was an anomaly. I don't even remember. But yeah, I remember the feeling and just the energy in the room. Yeah. I remember the feeling, the energy of the room of like shame and guilt and confusion and like Mm -hmm. excitement and just like feeling that palpable energy of like, oh, we're talking about something that's bad. Yeah, yeah. And we're exploring something that we're all sort of dipping our toes into. But the energy was never directed with confidence in a place of like productivity. It was Mm -hmm. just kind of like, here, we're going to talk about these things on the surface, but never the truth about pleasure or connection or love or relationship or having consensual sex. So the countries where people are having conversations around consent, I'm interested to talk about that because there's a part of the conversation around that that you know, positions those conversations like people are too young Mm -hmm. to be talking about sexuality and sex. But you gave a great example of like, if I don't want to hug this person, I can say no and that's also consent. So I'd love to talk a little bit about those exemplary countries and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, so like I said, what we see is consent conversations start with toddlers. So they start very young. They're given the proper names of their bodies. So there's none of this like hoo-ha or cookie, which I don't shame anybody. Whatever you want to call your body is fine, but you should know. I meet too many adults that are like, no, the outside vagina. And I'm like, what's, okay, Uh, vagina's inside, vulva's outside. And they're like, vulva? Like, is that, like, Mm -hmm. that's a word? Or they'll be like your lips. And I'm like, okay. And that's your labia. And really just, you know, you can call it whatever you want, but when you are going to talk to a provider, it is really helpful if you're on the same page. But also you should just know the anatomically correct terms for your body. So there's that piece. There's also then it is pleasure, like pleasure is part of the curriculum. It's not this like, so you're you're talking about, oh, here come the STI slides. Yes, that's fear-based. Like there's a lot of fear-based propaganda around sex. Can you get STIs via sex? Yes, you can. You can also get HPV from making out with someone who has HPV in their throat and mouth. So it's not like, it's abstinence only and you only hold hands like you won't catch something else where humans and these organisms are made to like jump a ride onto our bodies. So the other thing in these countries is that what you see is that so I call them children, but like, right, they're like teenagers. So I'm like, what's a, a child from the perspective that I'm a mom? Yes, <laughs> but like yeah. these are like, you know, young yes. adults. We see that they actually have sex at an older age compared to the U.S. So the U.S. people are having sex at a younger age. And when they survey people in the U.S. and they ask, how was your first time? A lot of people regret it. There's a lot of regrets. And they felt pressured. They didn't feel like they were ready. You ask these other countries, you ask Germany, you ask someone in the Netherlands, you say, okay, well, how was your first time? 
Majority of them say, fun. It was really fun. It was really pleasurable. They have less partners, so they tend to be more monogamous. They tend to talk to their parents about it. I mean, in some of these countries, sleepovers among teenagers, like of opposite sex, is acceptable. His parents allow this. I was actually talking with someone, her husband's Swedish, so they're talking about their son has a bed. He wants to get a bunk bed, but her husband's like, he can't get a bunk bed. He needs to have this queen bed. His wife's like, why? Why does he? He's 10. And he's like, well, in a few years when girls start sleeping over and she's like, wait, what? And they're like, she's in the Midwest. She's like, nobody's sleeping. You don't understand. No one's sleeping over. And he's like, that's so weird. Like, what do you mean? Like, and I, and, and she was asking like, what do you think about that? And I'm like, I think you need to have a conversation. That's what I think about that. But culturally, it's just so different. But when you look at the rates of STIs are lower, having sex later in life, talking with your parents, open communication is happening, sharing experience with the parents, consent being a part of it means that nobody feels like this guilt, this pressure, this coercion. And female pleasure is explained. So a lot of times in sex ed in the United States, it's like, what's a vagina for? Babies go out, penises go in. It's very male-centered. Mm-hmm. It's that very much like you're reduced to your reproductive capacity. You you capture sperm via penis and then you push out a baby. Like, that's it. And there's no, hey, let's get clitorate. Let's talk about the clitoris and explain, you know, explaining to people how all of that works. And so that's also happening in these other countries. And it's not something that's like, Oh, just these like one-off countries. The World Health Organization has actually like they started the Pleasure Project. They're like pleasure is so crucial for health that this should be taught, and this is something everyone has a right to. And meanwhile, the U.S. has like fingers in their ears, being like, "La la 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 la, la I don't hear that." Yeah, I would love to talk about why pleasure is mm-hmm. important from a health perspective because I think we kind of un marry the two mm-hmm. where we're like if it's pleasurable even maybe this is just me in my mind but it's there's a part of me that believes that what's pleasurable is bad for me and maybe that's related to the religious upbringing maybe that's related to the relationship with sex but it's almost like my relationship with food sometimes uh-huh. where it's like this food is good it's bad for me mm-hmm. this me sitting and scrolling on my phone bad for me me yeah. doing you know having a laugh with my friends about something maybe we shouldn't laugh about bad for me. You know, we have this association. So what's happening from a health and body perspective with pleasure and how can we sort of uncouple pleasure as bad? Yeah. Well, everything you just described is shame. And it's something I actually say in the book is this normal. There's a part where I'm just talking about like, we're going to heal our hormones and eat our cake too. And I know that in saying that, like I am a heretic within the wellness space within this community, because there absolutely are people who are like, you know, you'll you'll see the stuff out there where everything we do has to be shamed. Like you're just not being perfect enough. You're taking a fully hot shower and you don't end it in cold every single time. Like, totally. mm, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm having a hard day. I'm on my period. I just want to be in this warm water. Like, I want to like, just exist without trying to make it be progress for my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, totally. It's just like yeah. climbing the spiritual mountain or climbing the self-care mountain. You're like, why does it all have to be for like yeah. progress or growth? Well, I think about there's like the anti-coffee holier than thou people. Yeah. Like I drink coffee. I'm not going to apologize to anyone about it. And I share it on social media mm-hmm. because it's real and I'm not going to lie about it. And there are people that are like, you know, I don't drink any coffee and I haven't drank coffee since da, da, da. And it's like they there's such a morality that we attach to all of these decisions that we make. Food is like the number one, right? Food should never be pleasurable. What is it staying? Food is fuel. I'm like, I don't want to live with those people. I don't want to be around those people. That is not my jam. I am a foodie and I contend I only have so many meals left. And my husband knows. 
he'll want to go somewhere to eat. And I'm like, if we have to, like, then I'm down. But otherwise, like, I only have so many meals in my life and I want to enjoy them. It's pleasurable. Eating is pleasurable. And there's nothing wrong with that. I enjoy eating vegetables. It is pleasurable for me when they are cooked well. Like, you could have all of those things. So I think the food example is perfect because when you're eating and you're hustling and bustling and you're not present with your food and it's not pleasurable, you're not going to digest your food as well. You are not going to create the same amount of saliva. You won't have the enzymes generated the same way. You're not going to chew as well. You're not going to actually have the same digestive enzymes. Like It's going to negatively impact your digestion because you need to be in a rest and digest state. That part of the nervous system that loves pleasure. When you're in this fight or flight state, like you're not going to digest as well. And yet there are people telling you, just eat your food like it's your job. Like, I know that if that's your jam, then bless you, send you on your way. But not for me. And I think it's the same way with sex and anything else that could have pleasure to it. It's like you have to feel some kind of shame about it, right? Because we can't just have pleasure for pleasure's sake. And yet when it comes to sex, I mean, there's the connection that we have with someone else. There is the bonding that occurs, the release of oxytocin and hormones and neurotransmitters that are protective. So at a cellular level, we're fighting off aging in a way that's not like you're going to live forever. Although, you know, there's a good argument to be made that having more sex, you are going to live longer and better because of the hormones that it releases and the way it makes you feel. But also when you're having pleasure, you're just going to feel better. Think about like how many people are walking around with anxiety and depression and yet we could be having these pleasurable, shame-free experiences, which, by the way, if anyone figures out how to live a shame-free life, let me know the secret mm -hmm. because we are so inundated with so many messages about what to feel shame about that I think it's a real struggle. Yeah, I really loved what you said about the eating example and how our body processes the food better, digests mm -hmm. the food better. It like allows our body as a system and whole to really metabolize that. And the same with sex. I mean, if you're having more pleasurable sex, you'll be more wet. You're probably, mm -hmm. you know, your body will be more relaxed. You're able to enjoy it so much more. Something you mentioned that I've never asked anyone about, but was related to the chemicals released for bonding purposes when mm -hmm. you're having sex. So how do you think about that as it relates to movements around the conversation around one night stands or like kind of women being more in their power and their sexuality to have sex with more partners? Do you think that's possible for us not to bond to people? How do you think about that? I think it's absolutely possible. I think that it's very reductionistic for us to say oxytocin is a bonding hormone. Therefore, when it gets released, you have to bond to that person. It's also an anti-stress hormone. So it opposes cortisol. So for some people, they'll seek out sex because sex relaxes them when they're in a stressed state. Other people are like, stress is a turnoff. I cannot have sex when I'm stressed. But there are people that absolutely are like, hey, I'm stressed. I'd like to have sex because I know that's going to help me feel better. People seek out sex for a lot of different reasons. So women, it could be bonding. It could be wanting to feel closer in their relationship, uh, to have a level of intimacy. And sometimes it's just pleasure for pleasure's sake. Yeah, I think a lot of our community when we think about libido and sexuality, a lot of them feel so burnt out and disconnected from their bodies mm -hmm. that it's hard for them to get into their bodies enough to want to have sex or to feel like ready for sex. And I feel like so many women are doing so much. You know, we're trying to be the entrepreneurs and the side hustlers yeah. and the best friends to everyone and all these things that it's really hard to prioritize getting in our body and our own pleasure. 
I am juggling quite a bit lately. <laughs> I have a new baby, um, six months in, and uh, we are finishing our book and running a business and a marriage and a house. And um, it's just a lot, but everything is all good and just my dream, but it's a lot. But I have found that if my health routine is on point, then everything runs smoothly. And one huge piece of that routine is my supplementation. And Symbiotica has just always been a constant in my routine. Uh, If you haven't heard of Symbiotica, they're a health and wellness company that does everything with intention. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I know them. (laughs) Shervin has been on the podcast many times. I just have seen how passionate, how incredibly intelligent, how dedicated he is to creating products um, that are clean, plant-based, without toxic or harmful chemicals, which we need more of that in the world. Um, So let me just run you through what I'm taking. Um, I take the vitamin D3 K2. It's the liposomal form. I just squirt 12 little pumps in my mouth every single morning. I also take their B12. Um, I'm also obsessed with the liposomal vitamin C. I have these little packets whether it's winter or whatever season, it's obviously great for immunity, but it also um, is amazing because it has biotin, one of nature's most beautifying ingredients. Uh, So I've seen an improvement in my skin, hair, and nail growth as well. I do have mom brain, um, but I'm doing my best to just support my brain health in any way. So for brain health, focus and memory, I really love taking their liposomal magnesium L3 and um, It's an innovative form of magnesium that is able to cross the blood brain barrier. It supports brain health, mood, immune system function, and overall well-being. It's incredible and tastes amazing. It's like this yummy vanilla cream flavor. That's the thing with uh, Symbiotica products. They taste unbelievable. So it really makes taking all of these supplements so easy, so yummy. And I actually look forward to it. So if you want to give Symbiotica a try, there is no better time. Right now is the time. Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Use our code almost 30, 20% off site-wide. So major. And then when you bundle and subscribe, which I highly recommend because you never want to run out of anything, uh, you're going to get an extra discount. So just do it up. Symbiotica.com and use the code almost 30 for 20% off site-wide. I'd love to talk a little bit about what is happening when women are so stressed that they have a low libido mm-hmm. and how can we support them in getting in their bodies enough to feel more pleasure and have a higher libido? Yeah. Well, okay. So I do want to talk about the low libido piece. I do want to say though that, you know, having orgasms is an act of mindfulness. Like being present in sex is so important and we come back to food. Who wants to be mindful and present with a plate of like slop that you're like, yeah. oh, this is just to like fuel me. And mm-hmm. so These are little things you can do throughout the day, like being really present, like all five senses going all in with your food. When you're outside walking, it's like freezing today, right? Feeling the cold on your skin, feeling what does that feel like? How does the air smell differently with the temperature change? And these kinds of acts where you're just tuning in, you're training your body to become more mindful, which makes it so much easier when it comes to sex because every message we've ever received can come up during sex. But if your nervous system's already primed, I'm a mindfulness champ. It's so much easier for you to go there. So to your point about libido and stress, so there's a couple things that are going on. So we've got the hormone piece and then we've got like the nervous system piece. So with the hormones, if cortisol is going up, you're in survival mode. And the body's like, if we're surviving, why do we want to try to make a baby? Because it's a scary environment right now. 
And for anyone that's like, but I don't want a baby, your biology doesn't care. Those ovaries have a totally different agenda for you. You just don't have to tell them. You don't have to tell them that you don't want a baby, but you do want their hormones. So just just get their the hormones from there. So if you're totally stressed out, though, the body's going to be like, well, what what's sex? Like sex is like an act that we perform that, you know, could potentially end in pregnancy. So that's a little bit scary, right? When we're trying to be safe in the environment and the environment's not safe. And so we do see hormonal shifts, which is your body's way of keeping you safe, not betraying you, albeit very, very annoying. Now, the other piece is that, you know, whenever we talk about sex, people are like hormones, you know, clitoris, vulva, vagina, like penis, like all the parts. And what gets left out of the conversation is the nervous system. So if you think about a train track, we've got a train track and that train is going to be the delivery system of like pleasure, sex, like high brain, we want to do this. If you are being met with stressors throughout the day, and this happens a lot in relationships where it's like you're in a partnership, you ask them to follow through on something because it would help alleviate your stress, they don't. You just put one block on the train track. Let's say it's the end of the day. You're doing dishes. You feel just totally stressed out. The kids are like making a mess in the house and you're like, hey, can you just help pick up? And they're like, hey, I'm watching the game right now. Block her. Okay, so you had a hard day and you're like, hey, I just really want to talk to you about today. Like I want to share with you. Like I had this really stressful experience at work and maybe that partner's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I don't really have time for that right now. Or they're just scrolling on their phone, ignoring you. Another blocker. But then that partner comes back around later and is like, oh, I know you love it when I kiss your neck. And they try to send the train. But the train now has to get through all these blockades. It doesn't happen because all of these stressors and this partner reinforcing this, like, I'm not safe in my environment, has created a blockade. Now the brain is like, there's so much static. I cannot receive the message. Train does not make it to the station. And so it's never deployed. The like, hey, it's sex time never gets deployed. So it's not that... You necessarily have a low libido and you're broken or you need fixing or anything like that. It's that there are things that are literally putting blockades in the way so that you can't receive those signals. And that's where like, yes, we have to focus on hormones in some aspects, but we need to focus on the relationship as well. That's huge. I'm so grateful you said that because in this period of time in my life, I'm just so curious about all the things and messages that women are given to like shapeshift and change and like, mm-hmm. and it's like, dude, where is like any responsibility on the partner yeah. or the other person to be like in conversation with them, you know, where it's like the women are like, okay, I have a low libido. I've got to get higher libido. Mm-hmm. got to like de-stress myself and I've got to do all these things. And it becomes another thing on the to-do list yeah, rather than like something that's liberating them. Well, and sex becomes something on the to-do list. And who wants to do anything on that to-do list? <laughs> totally. So the relationship, I think that's so important is people being in relationships where they can feel like they're with a partner that's seeing them, understanding them, supporting them and feeling more safe in their body and feeling really relaxed and grounded. So what would be a conversation that someone could have if they're feeling like, okay, there's three blocks in the way of my train Mm -hmm. that have been created and I don't know if the man, if in this case it's heterosexual, knows. Yeah. How could we sort of have the conversation to support us in like the train getting into the station? (laughs) Yeah, well, this is what's really important. So in the book, I have checklists for you to understand like what people would call turn-ons and turn-offs. It's based on the sexual excitation and inhibition model that is basically like things that get you excited, that get you there, and things that will inhibit you, which are the very, very important things. So in taking that quiz, you can start to understand like, hey, I'm someone who has touchier breaks. 
And if you're someone with touchier breaks, those are the things that your partner has to work on. And so having a conversation with your partner, you know, letting them know, hey, I really want to be intimate with you. Like I love sex with you and this is how I'm wired. This is how I'm set up. Sometimes men will get defensive because they're like, listen, like I do all of this stuff every single day and like I work so hard. I hate that conversation because it's – I don't think they intend to but they – what they're saying is that I do all this stuff. I'm entitled to your body. I do all this stuff. I'm entitled to sex. That is the wrong conversation and it, it, it can be really difficult. If that is the way your partner is coming about it, you probably can't manage that on your own. Like having a therapist and yeah. someone who's trained in sex therapy, honestly, is what you want because they know how to walk that line and how to help you in the sexual health department, but also help you in your overall relationship department. So having that conversation with your partner, if they start down that road, probably time to call in some outside help. But otherwise, letting them know first, like, hey, this is what I want. The end goal is I want more sex with you and I want to be very engaged in our sexual relationship. For me, these are the things that, you know, put up blockades for me. So for me, I need to feel like I'm being supported. I need a little less stress and not doing the like, you have to do this or you're not doing this because that will put up the block and, you know, everybody starts to shut down when they feel attacked. But instead, coming from the perspective of how you feel, and how if these little things shift, that's going to help your body be able to receive those signals. Men, they not all of them, but a lot of them operate differently. They have more of this spontaneous desire. They're walking around with sex on the mind all the time. They could have everything in the world going on in their life, but you walk by and, you know, you're wearing like your pajamas, but they like see a little nip slip and they're like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, it, it is time to go. And you're like, running the to-do list or the lunch is mm -hmm. packed is like, what's carpool going to look like? Uh, you know, my commute, like, am I ready for this meeting? Like, you're doing a lot more in your mind that they might make that advance. And they're like, I don't understand. For me, all I did was see you and I'm in the mood. Why is it not like that for you? And it's because that's just the way you are. You operate. That's your mode of operation. You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. And it is a situation where they have to ease up on the brakes and at the same time recognize that for a lot of women – you have to get things in motion before the brain is like, oh, sex, I really like this. Let's do this. Like, because it's very easy for you to be like, yeah, no, I really like take it or leave it when you've had so much on your plate. Yeah. I think that's huge. And understanding that difference is just, it's the realist. And I remember I read Sex at Dawn last year and in it, it talked a lot about women's libido and just how we've been told over time that women don't have as high of a sex drive. <laughs> it was freaking crazy. Yeah, so how is gosh. that a lie? Because I feel like, honestly, it's such a, it's so deeply in me that it it feels like a truth. Yes. Right? Okay. So we've been told that women are just not interested in sex. They're not that into sex. It's like impossible to make a woman orgasm. These are like myths to feed the male ego. And I really think keeps propping up the misinformation and and the lack of information, like what's gay kept from men. I should clarify, like we're talking very much in this like heteronormative sense, yeah. but that's because when we look at the orgasm gap as an example, if you are in a heterosexual relationship, men are orgasming at 95%, that's their rate, and women are orgasming at 65%. So when we see these gaps and these issues, it usually is in heterosexual relationships. We know lesbians, in one study, it showed they were orgasming at 86%, so much higher rate within the relationship. 
But we also lack a lot of data, <laughs> like a lot of data in sexual health, but also same-sex relationships, non-binary relationships. We just lack a lot of information on that. Just all to say that like we're, we're being very binary and like the men versus women, but that's where we have a lot of the issues that we see come up. It's not like they can't come up in other relationships. And at the same time, it's also where we have the research. I wonder if in a lesbian relationship, it's like there's a greater depth and honesty and truth that is maybe lacking in heterosexual relationships. That's a possibility. I also think like when you own a vulva, it's a lot easier to find a clitoris. Like, you know, like, oh, and if you've ever masturbated, you know what feels good. If you don't own that, you need to ask for directions. But society has always told you as a penis owner that like you just deliver pleasure and you're a stallion in the bedroom and like you have to please women. And it's a lot of pressure on men that sometimes puts ego in the way. And then we've got women faking orgasms, so they never get the memo that, like, that's not it. Mm -hmm. So is there any data around us having a greater sex drive or an equal sex drive? Like, anything that was interesting in your research where you were like, wow, women, because maybe we're able to orgasm more than one time, like, was there anything interesting that you found related to that? Well, we are able to orgasm more than once. We have a shorter refractory period. So, yes, we can have multiples. The clitoris is only for pleasure. That's it. But what I found really interesting was this paper talking about how we should really classify the classify a phase of the cycle as the sexual phase of the cycle. And so when you look at what that is, we always teach it as the ovulatory phase. No coincidence there, Mama Nature. So smart. And so what that is, is that about three days leading up to the luteinizing hormone spike. So LH is what spikes and tells the ovaries to ovulate an egg. So about three days before that, and then the day of the LH spike, and then after the LH spike, you're going to ovulate in 24 to 48 hours. So it might be a day or two. So you might get five, six days because once you ovulate, progesterone production begins and that that's a blocker in the bedroom. <laughs> so mm -hmm. progesterone, really good for sleep, really good for making you feel in love in life, loving your partner, really chill. So it is important like in the libido conversation, but it can also be why it's a little bit harder to get in the mood or even have an orgasm. But I found that really interesting because that is what I've taught for years is that, you know, during that phase of your cycle, estrogen and testosterone are rising, no progesterone around to block anything, and you get in the mood. And we see that a lot when you are tracking to get pregnant. It's one of the things you look for. Do you have a rise in your libido? Because that's a sign you're going to ovulate. But to see researchers Instead of always just reducing us to that reproductive capacity, right? That like that's your whole purpose in life to actually say like this is the sexual phase. And I was like, I actually love that because if you don't want to get pregnant, you can't get pregnant for any reason rather than being like you're going to be most in the mood during ovulatory phase, which I will be so we will read the book. To be fair, I do talk about the ovulatory phase as we go through the 28 day program because we are tracking hormones for that purpose. But just to think like we can actually shift that language to be like this is the sexual phase. And it is when women, they fantasize a lot more about sex. So we're seeing fantasies are up. Ability to orgasm is up. Multiples is up. Experimentation is like up and more willing and more exciting. And so self-lubricating a lot more easier at that time of the cycle. I was – when you said fantasies, I'm like – because I've been talking about this with my friends. You kind of crossed your eyes there for I a minute. You were like, like oh, Whoa. my God. Because it's been crazy just the chapter that I'm in in my life and 
the mind and my the fantasies are just like it's wild like what women the stories we tell or like in a beautiful way like kind mm-hmm. of how far we can go yeah yeah so i'd love to talk a little bit about that are men fantasizing as much as women are women really just telling these drawn out sexual stories like what's that what's that conversation like isn't it interesting women they really like the mental stimulation of sex. There's a reason why romance novels are like, 100%. they're so big. And I like, I just feel like, what have I been doing with my whole life? Because I always thought romance novels and Fabio and that's not for me. But I have been on TikTok, as many people have. And the romance people, like they're reading these books and they're talking about it. I'm like, that just sounds like a good time. My goodness. So you men do have fantasies, but it's usually I want to have sex with this person. That's their kind of fantasy. Whereas women, they put a little more into that. And there are women who are like, I just like to fantasize about one person or doing mm-hmm. this one thing. That's totally normal. It's also totally normal if you have some long drawn out fantasy, quite common for people to fantasize about threesomes, but never want to have a threesome. Mm-hmm. So lots of people in anonymous surveys will report threesome fantasies but never want to act on it. And so that's important for people to understand is you might have the wildest fantasies and never want to act on them. And that's totally normal. And that's actually why a lot of people will never share their fantasies with their partner because they're like, I don't want to actually do it. And also it's really hot that this is mine. Like I get to Mm -hmm. keep it to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's for women. It's like when we have the fantasies, it's so much of the story. Like the clothing has to be right. I'm like the location. It's like for 20 minutes, I'm describing a home. And then it's like <laughs> describing know, what I'm wearing. Why are not writing romance novels, <laughs> friend? Like, it's, it's just absurd. And then I'm like, damn it, where am I? Like I don't even. Yeah. And then it becomes like I'm just like describing my ideal house. And I'm like, okay, we're not even <laughs> in the mood anymore. We're just like in my fantasy home. You're like, I just went HGTV here. <laughs> literally, literally, I'm like, I think I just want to make over houses. Like, yeah. Or I'm describing like <laughs> outfits that I want to buy. And, and that's wear. okay if that turns you on as well. <laughs> so, I mean, because there's all kinds of things that, you know, they get lumped in the the fetish camp. And some of those is like somebody just being really intelligent. Mm-hmm. And actually for a lot of women, they'll report seeing their partner doing something that is their talent. That is something that's one yes. of their gas pedal moments. Like seeing them in doing like the thing on that purpose. they yeah, on purpose. Yeah. Oh my God, say no more. Yeah. It's so funny how simple that may seem, I think, to a man to be like, wait, she just wants to see me like give a presentation mm-hmm. or or being Throwing with a touchdown. <laughs> yeah. Or being with the kids. Like being yes. with the kids and seeing them like, oh my God, they're playing with the kids, they're taking care of the kids. That's part of that signal of like hey, like Mm -hmm. I've got an ally in this Mm -hmm. life. Like I'm not going it alone. I can be intimate with this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that's interesting too because it's like thinking about the way men relate to women where it's more the physical. You know, Mm -hmm. it's more like seeing a little little butt when you walk by or whatever. And it's like women, it's like seeing them in roles Mm -hmm. or seeing them in these energies of purpose of of whatever their like gift is or whatever their skill is. But for me, that's like the hottest thing when you see someone that's just like in their genius, Mm -hmm. masculine, feminine, woman or man, it's just like the most attractive thing, even sexually or not sexually. You're just like, wow, there's a magnetism when they're on purpose, Mm -hmm. which is so beautiful. I'd love to talk about what are some of the issues that are thought to be normal but aren't from the book? Because I was, there was one in there that I was like, oh my God. Oh, well, I want to know which one's the oh, oh my God one. Okay. This is so embarrassing. I don't know. I wrote this whole book. Like, okay, this I, I'm is like so you should em- not be embarrassed in front of me. You're like the thing from us. the book. It's just us in 830 Nation. Peeing a little bit when you're jumping. Oh, okay. Your girl when I'm doing jumping jacks is like 
I have to not do the leg part. Mm-hmm. I'm just doing the arms. So there is pelvic floor physical therapy for That's that. That's what I'm going to do. Help. Oh, yeah, for sure. So doctors don't talk about that enough. I really don't think they talk about a physical therapist and occupational therapist enough in being allies in this. And you'll hear some doctors say like, oh, it's normal to pee yourself a little bit. You're just getting older. No. Disrespectfully, F that. No, you're not just getting older. <laughs> to just tell us that, like, so dismissive. So it is something that is quite common. And I have to say that I was out with a group of girlfriends and I was pregnant with my second and they were like talking about, oh, you're going to have your second and then you're probably going to start peeing yourself because it's never the same again. All, <laughs> Dude, why do women do that they to were one another? All, <laughs> no, right? It's like, great, you want a baby? Well, you're going to pee yourself. You're like, It's only like once you're in, right? Because if you're not pregnant, they're like, have another. It's the best thing ever. And then once you're pregnant, they're like, <laughs> yeah, they're like, are you puking all morning? <laughs> Let me like, tell you how it really is. <laughs> I know. Why do we do that? I don't do that. You'll see from the book. I'm very candid. I'm like, let me tell you the truth. The full truth. Like, you want to know about motherhood? It is wonderful. It also is, like, the hardest and worst thing you've ever done, like, all at the same time. So with that, they were having this whole conversation, and everybody's just going around talking about how peeing your pants is normal. And I was like, okay, so friends, like, I have to tell you. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, let me get my stethoscope like, so you know I'm legit. And I was like, that's not normal. And they're like, wait, like every one of them, their doctors had told them it was totally normal. I'm like, absolutely not. You can do something about it. And they're like, what? Like I can go to the trampoline park with my kid and not be in my pants? I'm like, yes, actually. Like we, I, it was so funny. I was doing like Miss Rachel's little hopped little bunnies with my toddler. And I had to go to the bathroom really bad. But he's like, oh, one more song. And I'm like, I don't want a tantrum. So one more song. And I'm hopping. And then when I was done, I was like, oh, my God, gold star. Like, I just hopped with a full bladder after two kids in my 40s and no urine leakage. Like, (laughs) you're like queen. Yes. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you, Pilates and physical therapy, because taking care of the pelvic floor is everything. And urinary incontinence usually only gets worse, like Mm. later in life. So we want to take care of that now because we don't want to be like rocking depends if we don't have to, because they chafe. I know. I wore them after my second. (laughs) I mean, that's what you have to wear those like ice diapers because you're. Yeah. After you have. No, after my second, I got like my first, I had all these pads and stuff. And then there were people on my Instagram that were like, don't do that. Just get the pens. And I was like, wait, yeah, wait a minute. Why have I never thought about that? This is actually great. And then you just rip them off. But walking in them is not comfortable. I mean, a hundred percent. Okay. So that was my thing. That's not normal. What are some other things in there that you were like, okay, we need to break this down because people think it's normal and it's not. Yeah. Pain with sex is a big one. And how common pain with sex is. So a lot of women get told, like so many patients I've seen, ask Dr. Brighton that I do weekly on Instagram is anonymous. And the number of times people are like, my doctor said it's normal that I'm having pain, but is it normal? And all they get offered is you need lube and you just need to relax and you need to have some wine. And I'm like, that's not it. You might need lube. Not having enough lube is a very common reason to have pain with sex. But if every single time it's painful and you're using lube, we need to investigate why. And so that's when the myth of virginity also gets the myth that your first time should hurt. That is not true. Your first time should not hurt. If it hurts, something's going on. And that is usually a lube issue. But if you're having pain with sex, it could be endometriosis, adenomyosis, it could be a sign of fibroids, like you could have something else going on. Sometimes it could be something serious. So you need to get that investigated. And if your doctor's like, "Mm, you know, it just hurts sometimes. And what's scary to me is how many female doctors 
are like that, are saying that. And I'm like, are you just accepting that in your life? Who told you that, that you think that this is okay? And so that pain with sex is the chapter on sex of all kinds. I started with pain with sex and my editors was like, wait, this is like, it's set. it should be fun. Like, why are we mm-hmm. starting with pain with sex? Because when people think of sex, they think of vaginal sex, penetration first. And that is one of the biggest problems women face, vaginismus, endometriosis, all of these things that can cause pain with sex. So we're going to start there and get people out of pain and know what's normal and what's not. And then we'll get to all the fun stuff because none of that stuff's fun if you're in pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you were talking, I'm like, oh, that's only men doctors that are saying it's like okay that you're in pain. They're like, it's it's okay that you're in pain and I kind of like it. <laughs> it's like I'm kind of enjoying you being in pain. I want to talk about hormones because yeah. I think hormones is such a relevant topic for our audience and it's such an important one that um, we've talked about. But I do feel like just the conversation in the fact that hormones relates to so much, mm. relates to our mental health, to our libido, to like our sex drive, to our periods, to all these things. So how do you, I guess, start with hormones at the center and understand how much it relates to aspects of being a female? I think the first thing you have to understand is that every system of your body has receptors for these hormones. Their job is to be chemical messengers. They go through the system and they basically drop off a message and that system has to respond accordingly. And so we see that without adequate estrogen stimulating the brain or the heart, we'll see issues with dementia, cardiovascular disease rising, Mm. osteoporosis when it comes to the bones. So your bones and your brain and your heart, they also need testosterone and they need progesterone as well. So every single system needs these hormones and you know what I just described, those are just our sex hormones, which in the book I have a pyramid where I show they're at the very tippy top of like the hormone hierarchy. Right below that is your thyroid and at the very base is your adrenal glands and then your insulin. And for people who don't know insulin, it's the hormone that knocks on the cell's door and is basically like, I will vouch for glucose. Let's let glucose in. Like glucose is cool. And that's your metabolic health. So your adrenal glands and your metabolic health, these are the foundation that have to be right. If they're not right, None of your other hormones are going to be right, and you're going to stand very little chance in getting those set right. And this is a part of hormonal health that like, really nobody talks about, is just how important stress, sleep, and metabolic health is. Like, right, everybody always wants to talk about, like, what's the superfood to eat? I'm into that. I will flip to that in a magazine. The people want to talk about, like, what's the superfood, and how many grains should you eat, and this and that. And nobody really talks about, like, we have to understand what your blood sugar response is like, that your insulin levels are really important to keep track of, that you can lose clitoral sensitivity over time if you have blood sugar dysregulation. That's going to affect your sexual health. And not to mention the fact that you could end up with diabetes and that affects your vision and your nerves and your kidneys and all the other sequelae. Wow. Yeah, that was the part that I felt like was interesting in the book was the insulin relation to libido. Mm -hmm. And just like another moment where you're like, whoa, the body is so connected mm-hmm. and there's such a relationship in everything and it does often come back to what we're eating and how we're nourishing ourselves and how we're supporting ourselves in the best way. But I want to talk a little bit more about that, the adrenal health and the metabolic health as the foundation. Is adrenal fatigue something that exists? Because I've heard like both people be like, it doesn't exist, it's not real. And yeah. I've heard people that are like, it actually exists. So adrenal fatigue, the term that's the, and the concept that it conveys is not real in that your adrenal glands do not get fatigued. And this is the thing. If the layperson says adrenal fatigue, 
I have no problem with that. And I am happy to teach from that. What we know it from the science is HPA dysregulation, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. So basically how your brain and your adrenal glands talk. And it absolutely is real. So in the book, I have a quiz on low cortisol, high cortisol, how to tell which one you are. And I talk about like the difference between what's called adrenal fatigue, which is HPA dysregulation, and Addison's disease. Now, Addison's disease, rare, but it can happen. Autoimmune disorder that affects the adrenal glands, they get destroyed. That's adrenal fatigue front because they can no longer do their job. Like they are, they are destroyed. And so that's Addison's disease. That's adrenal insufficiency. What most people mean when they call, when they say adrenal fatigue, that's going to be how the brain and adrenal glands are communicating. It also can be part of how the receptors are. So cortisol is very damaging if you have too much of it. Like the right amount is great because then we don't have inflammation. It helps control inflammation. It helps you wake up in the morning. Like so much good stuff that it does. Too much of it, now we're in a pro-aging state. We're aging more rapidly than we should. And nobody wants that, right? Because not only could you like look older, you might not like that. You're going to be older in your system. So your organs of your body. And so what the body will do is if you've been in a state of high cortisol, it will upregulate enzymes that inactivates it to cortisone, or it might actually downregulate the receptors. So the receptors are like, nah, I cannot respond to you. I can't. I'm not going to listen to you because you, you're like the big bad wolf being like, let me in. And it's like, no, no, no. You were cool once, but like, we're not friends anymore. Like, no, I'm not into this. With that, I think that's the, that's the conversation we have to be having. I see a lot of doctors be like, adrenal fatigue is not real. So you're just crazy. Don't talk about it. And just meet people where they're at. Yeah. It's just the same thing when somebody is like, says to me, like my outside vagina. And I'm like, okay, are we talking about the vulva? Like what? Okay, let's get there to a common ground. It's not for me to be like, ha, 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 there's no outside vagina. You're yeah. so silly. Why don't you know that? But because they didn't go to medical school and like the it's not the onus is not on them. OK, so it's like you don't want us to be Dr. Google. But then when we're like not, oh, it's like, yeah. you know what I mean? You're like pissed about it. Yeah, I'll see that a lot online with doctors where they're like, this actually doesn't because I remember I talked about I had a lot of hormone health issues mm -hmm. when I first moved to Los Angeles. Mostly mine was caused by probably high cortisol. I was just working out 24-7. I was taking diet pills. I was just like completely disrespecting my body in a major yeah. way. And I remember being like, I have adrenal fatigue. And people being like, there's no such thing as adrenal fatigue. I'm like, what am I experiencing yeah. then? You're like, I just need a word to name yes. it so I don't feel crazy in my own body. <laughs> yes, I'm like, let me be me. Okay, so metabolic health. What is metabolic health? Because I think people – think about metabolism and they're like, I need to have a fast metabolism to lose weight. Yeah. And they kind of just see it in that way. Yeah. So when we're talking about metabolic health and like in, you know, for these purposes of insulin, what should happen is that you eat food, the pancreas releases insulin, insulin escorts the glucose into the cell. So glucose is sugar and it's a done deal and everything's fine. But what we see a lot of is that there can be insulin resistance going on or we see people, they're like, they're doing the best they can really. But you know, they might like slam coffee and eat a bagel and then they're having a blood sugar crash. And now cortisol spiking and is like, oh, my God, and epinephrine and, and, and norepinephrine are like panic bells, like sound the alarm and also release sugar into the system. And then insulin's like, what the hell? Like, I got to go clean that up now. And so then insulin's coming in. And so we've just got this roller coaster going on of blood sugar issues. And so when we think about metabolic health, it goes beyond that. It also goes with inflammation in your body as well. But I think you're absolutely right when you say like people just think like, oh, that means mm -hmm. I need to have a high metabolism or good metabolism. But it's more about 
how are you regulating the energy, the energy expenditure, the energy coming in? How are your hormones handling its business in the body the way that it should be? Are we having trouble with inflammation? There's a diagram in the book about sleep because then like people literally yawn when I talk about sleep and I'm like, you need sleep for hormones. I know. People yawn when I talk about meditation. It's like meditation. Oh, that again. But So I have this slide that I put up when I lecture at medical conferences to show doctors just how impactful sleep can be on hormonal issues. So when you see the populations that have major sleep deprivation, dysregulation happening, so like think about night shift nurses, like, oh, oh my, my gosh, God, bless. they have the most important job. Like night shift workers are so valuable mm-hmm. in our society, but the sacrifice they make is so beyond what anyone really comprehends. So when you're not getting enough sleep, we see there's insulin dysregulation. We see inflammation rises. We see there's thyroid disorders can arise from that. You can stop ovulating, stop menstruating. You can have all kinds of issues arise from not getting quality sleep. And so like in the conversations of fertility, when I ask people like, how are you sleeping? And they're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. Why are we glazing over this? This is so very important. That is when you restore, you recover. Whenever we're talking about adrenal health, so I own a supplement line and we have our adrenal support, a product which is to help with energy in the morning. I am the Adrenal Calm fan. So we have this Adrenal Calm product, which is to help you get restful sleep at night, help with cortisol coming down so melatonin can rise, all of that. That's the one that I'm like, it's the best one. No, everybody just wants to push it like first thing in the morning that I see. And I'm like, no matter how much we educate, people are like, I don't want to have to do the work in the evening. I'm like, you don't even have to do work. You just have to go to sleep. (laughs) You just have to get good sleep. But that's where people don't focus enough, in my opinion, when we talk about adrenal or hormone health altogether, is that it's not just about getting in bed. It's not just about eight hours. It's getting that restorative sleep, getting the deep restorative sleep, getting the REM sleep, sleeping in a completely dark room, making sure you're getting the best sleep of your life. All of that, that is the solution to healing like so many of your hormonal issues from the foundation up. So I'm going to say that's not going to be the end all be all. Don't think like you can just sleep and then everything's going to be fine. But if that piece isn't right, it's going to be so much harder. Like you can eat all the best food in the world, but your body is not recovering at night. Totally. Yeah. I think in our culture and world, it's easy to be like, what can I buy? Yeah. What's the thing I can add? And I've been really obsessed with lately thinking about what I can subtract, Mm -hmm. what I can actually remove from my life or my process or whatever. And focusing on sleep is really huge. So you mentioned one thing, which is sleeping in a really dark room. What are some other tools or important things for people to think about with sleep. Make it cool. So usually around 68 Fahrenheit. It'll depend. Like I say, my husband is like, I have to bundle up and have extra blankets. And I, especially in the luteal phase, that's when your body temperature is usually higher. Thanks progesterone. I'm like, no, AC on. I'm like sleeping as little as possible. I have children, so I can't just be naked. Otherwise, that's probably how it would be out of the sheets and everything. So even though I'm like, oh, 68 Fahrenheit, you might need it different. And then you might have to cohabitate with someone. So have fun with that. (laughs) (laughs) So the completely dark room, wearing blue light blocking glasses at night, like two hours before bed, especially if you can't avoid electronics. It's great if you can avoid electronics. Like that's the ideal. But I've had patients who are like, I get anxiety when I'm going to sleep. If I just scroll through TikTok, like it literally numbs me out and I just do that. And then I put my phone and I go right to sleep. And I'm like, That is so interesting. 
I'm going to stop telling everybody no matter what, get rid of those screens. I would like to explore that more. I'd like to work on the sleep hygiene more. But also if that's working for you right now, maybe what we do first is let's get those like blue light blocking glasses going. Having a bed routine, I think I always think bedtime routines are for kids, but I, they're for life. That's so true that we stop that yeah. at an older age. Yeah. Wow. We stop doing the like, oh, baths and baby massages and songs and, and, and reading and, and reading. connection. Yeah. And- Wow. It's actually, I was laughing with my husband about how like I can no longer read at night because I've literally trained myself. Even my 10-year-old, I still read to him and I'll be reading to him and then I'll just fall asleep. And I'm like, I have trained myself that if I read, I'm falling asleep. That's what's happening. So I'm like, audiobooks for life now. (laughs) I'll do these meditations and it's like within seconds, I'm like just sleeping. My friend does the meditations and I asked her, I'm like, should I be falling asleep? She's like, no, you need to be like awake. I'm like, fuck, I'm falling right asleep. I fell asleep oh, between like in three minutes, literally, on my aura ring. Yeah, It yeah. was like, you're actually falling asleep too fast. I Something's know, it's wrong. like latency, red alert. It's like latency, red alert. Is that a problem? It's a problem. What is going on? It can be a sign that, oh, you're not getting enough sleep or yeah. you're like too exhausted. I'm a mom, so my latency is sometimes two minutes. Two minutes. It's like eight o'clock, two minutes. I'm <laughs> yes. out. I'm done. My and dream. I'm like, you know what? This is just the reality of the mm-hmm. life that I'm living right now. My toddler's going to wake me up a couple of times, so my body's like, don't mess around. <laughs> Just go to sleep. Stay I have so much gratitude for that, that I fall asleep so quick. I'm like, gosh, I remember yeah. the days when I had just such anxiety or mental yeah, yeah. chatter that kept me awake in that feeling. I think that's what's happening sometimes when people want to be on their phone or are on TikTok or scrolling. It's kind of like what I perceive, and this isn't a judgment, mm-hmm. it's like not allowing the space of thought or processing or digestion of mm-hmm. the day. Where yeah. you can kind of, because I think that time is so important. Yeah, to have a bookend of like, whoa, what was my day? Absolutely, you're absolutely right with that. And I think some people they get in a loop where they start spiraling. Yeah, they get in a loop of running the everything that they did wrong that day and judging themselves, and then what they have to do the next day, and that works them up, and that has the anxiety. And like that patient that I was describing to you, I'm like, okay, if that's helping you get sleep now, but like. I said, we're going to have to unpack that. And that is definitely, that is a good time to meet with a therapist of like, I can't be alone with myself at night and fall asleep. What is going on there? But sometimes, but something that I think in in the health space, people like to preach that perfection of you just yeah, shouldn't do yeah. that. That's the ideal. And it's really through, I worked in a homeless youth clinic for a couple of years and it was through that they learned a lot about harm reduction. And it's what I do a lot differently than other providers. It's like, okay. So you're doing this right now. This is working for you. Like, let's do a little harm reduction. Let's get some blue light blocking glasses in there. So we do some harm reduction. And then as we start to heal this hormone component, as you start to work on this other stuff, it becomes easier to have the energy to work on that. But if your issue, you know, for example, is that your progesterone is low, you're not a candidate for hormone replacement therapy. We want to bring that progesterone up. Let's work on that. And then let's start to tackle, like, what is this phone issue about? What's going on at night? But Trying to go there too quick before people have the energy, the capacity for it, or the mental health support to really do the work, that can do more harm than good. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And it's also like being present with people in their process. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, where are we at right now? It's not going to be, we're never looking at our phone and we're doing this. It's like, what is the next best baby step that people can take? And I think that's really beautiful for us to think about along any journey. You know, what's the the next easiest step? Something that you mentioned about hormones, you mentioned having low progesterone. How can people or our audience understand 
any hormone imbalances or issues that they're having? Is there tests they can take? What do you suggest? Yes. So I put a quiz in my book because there's a lot. I know, right? Oh, what a segue. So there's a lot that can be told by the symptoms that you have. In fact, sometimes in – so perimenopause is like a really tricky one, especially as you're getting into your later 40s. What is perimenopause? Ah, yes. So perimenopause is the decline of ovarian function. Those days are coming to an end. So perimenopause starts about anywhere from 7 to 10 years before menopause. That is when – we are maybe going to stop ovulating as frequently. It can start with just not not making as much progesterone. And we just see the ovaries are like, we did this ovulation thing. It was fun. We're going to get out of here now. Like we're done with this. And so during that decline of ovarian function, that's where we can see like hormones are all over the place. One month if I tested like your follicle stimulating hormone, which is FSH, which can tell me how much is the brain talking to the ovaries? Is it screaming at the ovaries? If it's really high, it's screaming at the ovaries because they're not doing their job. And so, okay, that should be indicative that we're getting closer to menopause. But the next month I might test you and it looks totally normal. Fine. It's all over the place sometimes in perimenopause. And so that's definitely one of those times that we got to go a lot more off of symptoms than we do with labs with the sex hormones. I still am someone who likes to see the data on the sex hormones to understand what are we dealing with. But We also live in a country where getting access to insurance. I just went through this with my insurance who like I just wanted to get some simple blood work and they were just like, yeah, that's going to be like $1,500. And because there was one test in AMH, which is anti-malarian hormone on there, that they were like, suddenly this is a fertility panel. And so you're charged more for things. I was like, I could actually fly to Spain, Mm -hmm. stay in a hotel and get blood work done and it would be less than what my insurance is saying that they have to now charge me just because I pulled out that card. All ridiculous. So anyhow, that's just to say I sympathize for people who do not have access to that because it's a struggle for everyone. You can go a lot off of your symptoms if you still are in your cyclical years. Definitely getting around that day 21 is what we typically say of a progesterone. But what we really should say is five to seven days post ovulation. Not everybody ovulates on day 14. So we want to go five to seven days after ovulation to see where your progesterone is at. That's one test you can do. If you tell me, though, that, hey, I'm not sleeping, I'm anxious, I feel really irritable, my PMS is like off off the chain, I'm in the luteal phase and it's only happening then, I already know we have a progesterone problem. And if you're not older than 45, I'm not thinking about hormone replacement therapy at that point because your ovaries should still be doing their job. So I'm going to try to support your progesterone or figure out what's going on if we can't support your progesterone, if we can't get that up, it seems like it's something else. When it comes to thyroid, Absolutely. I think everybody should have that screened annually. It is missed far too often. And we know that like over 27 million Americans are walking around with thyroid disease. And it's estimated that 50% have no idea that they have it. It's a simple blood test, like a very easy blood test so that we can look at what's going on with your thyroid. If you're in your 30s, you are at higher risk of having hypothyroidism. And women are already five to eight times more likely to have it than men. So To me, I'm like, this is just one that we should be screening, especially if you have unexplained weight gain, constipation, dry skin, losing hair, you're cold. If you're anxious, if you're depressed, like those kinds of symptoms, we've got to make sure the thyroid's functioning. Mm. It's interesting because so many of those symptoms seem like symptoms that most people feel like they struggle with all the time. Like so many of the symptoms are like, this also could be this, this also could be this. One of the questions I, I haven't gotten to it in the book yet, but I'm curious about a lot of women that I know don't have periods. Mm-hmm. Is that normal? What do you mean they don't have periods? Like they just never have a period? Are they on the pill or IUD or off the pill? 
I'm like some very on. concerned right now. I know. I Well, that's interesting because I'm concerned for them, but I yeah. don't know if that's a right move. So yeah, I know a good handful that. I don't know if they're underweight. I don't know. Yeah. Not, I don't know what it is, but don't have a period. No, if you're in your cyclical years, it's never normal to not have a period. So if your periods were regular, that means they came predictably. More than three months, that's amenorrhea. If it's been irregular periods and they were wildly unpredictable, then more than six months, that's amenorrhea. That's highly problematic. One of the most common causes is functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, stress. You don't eat enough. You move too much, like, to the, you know, compared to, like, how much you're eating. And those stressors can cause you to lose your period. So your period's gone. And a lot of people are like, yay, I hated that beast anyways. But what is also gone is the cognitive protection. Women are 66% of dementia patients. So let that sink in. This is actually protecting your brain. The cardiovascular protection. When you lose your hormones, you are now on par with men in terms of their risk of having a heart attack. That's very high, especially when you're younger. And then there's not to mention your bone health. People often think like osteoporosis. That's just like what grandmas get. Mm. Grandmas do get that. It presents (laughs) then, but grandma was getting it in her 20s. Like grandma was getting it much, much younger. And so I think a lot of people don't realize either is that not having access to those hormones, you're going to have a lot of problems later down the line. Not to mention it is going to mess with your sexual function. That's absolutely going to happen. Yeah, my perception is that it is related to overworking out, not eating enough. Mm -hmm. So it's something I witness in Los Angeles, baby. (laughs) It is. It's wild. I have to say, it breaks my heart. There's so much, like, there's so much produce here. And I love that. I love the vegetable access. I find it such a struggle every time I come here to actually find a place that is not vegan or vegetarian. It is such a struggle. When I was studying in my master's for nutrition, my research was in sarcopenic obesity. And I'm so that, yeah, let me just throw out a word there and not explain (laughs) it, right? So that is basically you start losing muscle cells and replacing them with fat. Whoa. So think that's about possible? Yeah, yeah. That happens. It's but, happening all the time but in this country. you can't have more – your body doesn't create more fat cells, so the fat cells just get bigger, correct? There, you're plumping up and you're feeling around your organs, okay? So it's very dangerous. It's central – it's the visceral adiposity, so it's very centralized around your organs. That's the highest metabolic risk, like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, like – fill in the bad blank and that is like what is happening. So I'm like, I don't care about your body composition as much as I care about where is that fat? Well, I should say like, I don't care about the number on the scale. Like I care Mm -hmm. about like, where is the fat around your organs? So with that, the round M&M guy, that's kind of what it's like. Like you see the older adults have really skinny legs, really skinny arms, but they're like really round in the center. That's sarcopenic obesity. And once you lose your muscle mass, you cannot sensitize insulin in the same way. You're, it is like downhill from there. Bad things are going to be chasing you down for your lifetime. And so one of the ways to combat that is with eating ample enough protein, but branch chain amino acids specifically, which you are only going to find in significant amounts in animal proteins. But here in LA, I'm like, I need to have, I just want a burger. Oh, this burger restaurant looks so good. And I'm looking at the menu and then they're like, we're saving the planet. And I'm like, no, that's actually not how that works. Like you need to look up microbiome of the earth and how cows and everything like actually affect the planet. But also what the hell is that burger made of? What is that? I think it is problematic here. I think it's problematic everywhere, but it certainly is problematic in LA because there is a body type, right? Yes. Like women are conditioned to shrink themselves, to take up less space in this world. Let's call it what it is. 
men and marketing and all of these things have really influenced us to be like, you don't take up too much space, okay? Yes. You get as small as possible because that's what's ideal. And that is highly problematic for so many reasons, but certainly for our hormones and our metabolic health. And then you've got that we never really get taught about nutrition in schools. And then there's always there's fad diets. There's like carnivore and there's vegan and there's keto and paleo. And there's like a name for everything that everyone can like get into and take to an extreme. And I'm not saying all of these are bad. Carnivore, I don't know about you. I'm like, <laughs> not yeah, a fan. Yeah, it's kind of You better bring me a lot more science before I like go down that road. But And I don't think it's like you can't be healthy on a vegan diet, but you just always have to ask the question, is this the best thing for me? Is this is like someone's telling you like vegan diet is super healthy. And it's like, well, is that true for you? Not to mention the amount of privilege it takes to eat a vegan diet and how expensive that is to do it right. I see people talk about like, well, this athlete was vegan and look at like what they're able to do. And I'm like, and they have a lot of resources, friend. The average person isn't going to get enough of what they need being on that diet. And so I think, would you say though, the average person in America because I wonder globally if it's easier for people because meat would be more of a luxury from a global perspective, well, would you say? it depends. So, you know, in the United States, we think about meat being like the boneless, skinless chicken breast. Mm -hmm. And in other countries, they're eating offal. So you're seeing that organ meat is actually being yes. consumed. I mean, most nutrient-dense food. And what's interesting is that when you look at colonization and like how Spain came in to like Mexico... And even France inhabited some islands and they're like, okay, well, the peasants can have organ meat and we're going to have this and that. They gave them the most nutrient dense foods. They gave them like the best yes. of the best. But that's like why you see the certain dishes that you do that incorporate the organ meat. So it really, yeah. it does depend, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it is interesting. Yeah. In Los Angeles, just with the shrinking and kind of like the size thing, that was something that I realized for so long. I was like, wow, like my goal would be invisible. Yeah. You know, it's like, how do we shrink ourselves? And I'll never forget one time I was with a dear friend and he was like, I was wearing this like outfit and it had these big shoulders and it was just like, just like very statement piece. And mm -hmm. he's like, oh my God, I love that you're just taking up space in that dress. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's not my, my conscious mind was like, oh, thank you. But my subconscious was like, I'm taking up space. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh my God, I look huge. Yeah. And he could even notice it when I said, he's like, whoa, like I just triggered something yeah. in her that was deeply ingrained related totally. to taking up space. And I'm, yeah. so we had even had to talk about it, but I was like, wow, I'm really afraid to take up space in that way. Yeah. You know, you can be like, I'm ready to take up space and it means success and it means blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, the actual physicality of like energetically yeah. taking up space. Have the audacity to sit like a man does on the bus. Yes. Like have the audacity like to stand like a man, like a man in a room, right? Yes. That was actually my word of this year. You know, every New Year's, my husband and I are like, oh, what's your word of the year? And mine was audacity. Wow. And he's like, audacity like oh my god you had the audacity to do that's that. I'm like, amazing i mean he was just like what yeah he was just like because it's always used so negatively i'm like no i'm gonna have the audacity to go after what i want i'm gonna have the audacity to be unapologetic about the life i want to live like i'm gonna have that audacity and that is something like when i've told friends they're like i've never thought about it in a positive way and i'm like yeah have the audacity to dream big have audacity to go after those big dreams just have the audacity to live your life for yourself. Could you even imagine? 
Oh my God, I'm obsessed with that. I love that. And I love that just moment too with your husband just being like, what? You know, you're yeah. like, get ready for this. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I would just always hear like these negative things on TikTok. Like, yes. Oh, he was expecting you to be like, joy. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, no. laughter. Abundance. I did abundance. abundance yeah. I did abundance. Expansion. Like, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh God. And so my end for 2020, it was adventure and we were supposed to travel like the world. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, no, we didn't go anywhere. You're like inter- <laughs> internal adventure. <laughs> yeah, I was like adventure, get COVID so bad that you're in bed on oxygen for months and don't go anywhere. No and way. Yeah. yeah. So Freaking I was like, blessed. well, that was an adventure, I guess. Yeah, you're like, like God damn it. you survived <laughs> a novel virus. <laughs> Abundance is such a throwaway one sometimes. You're like, abundance of what? Just like, yeah. like sometimes I'll say, like, I want abundance. Like, shut up. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you yeah. what do you really, really want? Yeah, the universe is like, oh, do you? Yeah, literally. I remember in 2020, we had like a reading with one of our readers and she was like, July is going to be a huge month for you. And we're like, yes, baby, money. Yeah. Like, bringing it in. And it was like the worst month of our lives. Like, just like <laughs> absolutely miserable. I was like, damn, it was a big month. Yeah. Not in yeah. the way that we wanted, but it was a big month. Was that like a tarot card? Is yeah. it like the tower? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, literally <laughs> she's the tower. Like, she's like pulling the tower. She's like, she's I like, see like, the devil in the tower. You're <laughs> yeah. like, oh, what? When you see that tower card, you're like, oh, God. Dude, honestly. <laughs> like, it's like, everything's about to fall apart. Yeah. Including and then you have me. to remember the star comes after the tower in <laughs> yeah. tarot. So the good things happen after. But yes, it is yeah. one of those things. But it is a slash and burn. It is. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful you came and I'm so glad we were able to talk about this book. I would love to just know what is your hope and wish for people reading this book? What would you love for them to get from it? Why don't we just continue with the audacity? To have the audacity to own your body, to live in your body, to make your hormones your superpower and be unapologetic for the fact that you bleed, you you don't have the capacity to be an incredibly sexual being and that you're deserving of the pleasure you want. Yes. I'm like, pleasure's not enough. Like, all the pleasure you yes, want. Yes, yes. You're like, pleasure. All the pleasure in the world. You're like, the audacity it's of pleasure. All. Yes. <laughs> Well, this has been amazing. This book and then your other books are incredible. And it's been such a pleasure to have you. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jolene Brighton. Again, the book is Is This Normal? And it's out now. And thank you to our sponsors for this episode. As always, just bringing you brands we really, really love and we vetted for you. Thank you to Cozy Earth, Element, Aloe Moves, BetterHelp, and Seed. You can find all discount information and we got good ones in the show notes as well as on almost30.com. Thank you all for listening. We really, really, really appreciate your listenership. And you can find out more about what we're doing over here at Almost 30 at almost30.com. Love you guys. Bye.